Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. you thought we were just going to run a few names over the screen and show some pictures and ask you to celebrate, uh, you're wrong. Uh, we're going to ask you to do so much more than that. The generation gap or generational gap uh, is a reference that's uh, kind of referencing the fact that there seems to be a difference of opinion about a lot of things between the generations. So, so it seems to be that uh, older people and younger people, however you differentiate that, uh, which, of course, when you talk about adults, you're talking about multiple generations are represented. It seems like they don't all agree, shockingly, on beliefs, politics, and values. And so we have come to know that as the generation gap. That was a new term. Uh, it started out in the 1960s when the baby boomers rebelled against all the traditional values uh, of their parents. Now, if you're following along and you're keeping that logic in your head, then you know baby boomers means old people because <laughs> the boomers are old now. So you're not thinking about a generation gap. You're thinking about people who are young in the 60s who, if you do the math, they're not that much a part of that younger generation. But they really are the ones who, who started this process. So if any of you younger generations are having trouble and you're hearing about how you should really value the tradition of your parents and grandparents, they started this. They sort of started this whole generation gap thing it really wasn't a giant sociological phenomenon until then. And part of what goes on with this generation gap is not just the fact that we have this differing beliefs between the generations, but it is the fact that we hang out and we tend to do our normal activities with people of our own age. That across the lines, there is very little intergenerational you know, sort of thing happening. In fact, the only place sociologists tell us now that genuine intergenerational community happens is in the nuclear family. That we really don't have any places outside home where we interact across the generational lines. And sociologists tell us that that's not good, it's not healthy, it's not okay. In fact, that the culture and the world and all the generations are suffering because of this reality. And so when we begin to think about an intergenerational model and what that looks like, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you're right in the middle of what this all looks like. And studies now are being done that talk to us about the value of intergenerational community, of what it means for us to sort of span the age groups and to gather together. And what the studies are finding is it turns out we need each other. That older people really need interaction with younger people, and younger people need interactions with the generations above them. And there are very specific reasons why this is true. And so if you just think about for a moment with me what that might look like, it turns out that isolation, being separated from generations, it leads to a higher rate of mortality, particularly among older people. So that as people age and they become more isolated and lonely, uh, it turns out that those who interact with younger generations on a consistent basis live longer and are healthier while they're doing it. In fact, studies show that older folks who hang out with younger folks fall less, forget less, and 
burn more calories than those who do not hang out with younger generation. That could just be stress. <laughs> but the fact is, there are tremendous benefits. And so all over the world, uh, there, are, there are different sort of experiments going on. In the Netherlands, uh, a number of years ago, almost a decade ago now, they launched this, this program. And the program in one particular city... Uh, consisted of several retirement homes who opened up space in the retirement home to provide free rent for young people. It seems like a great plan so far. And, and so in exchange for free rent, those students agreed to spend 30 hours volunteering per month. And the volunteering consisted of hanging out, attending birthday parties, watching sports, watching a movie. It consisted of very simple things. What was observed is that the process within that retirement home began to take off, that, that the older adults were healthier and the younger adults were happier. There was less stress in their life. So effective were these early programs that the program spread. Barcelona, Spain, in the mid-90s, launched a massive program in which students were placed inside seniors' Homes And the goal was very similar, low-cost housing for young people and the benefit of having interaction and people to help out. It was so effective that within a few months, it had spread to 27 other cities. France followed with its own version. And you'll be happy to know that the United States has a program, one, in Cleveland, Ohio. Maybe we could work on that together. And so when you begin to think about it, the Goodman Group did a study of all this. Let me break it down for you. This is what they've said. We've probably all heard about the challenges of the so-called generation gap, which tends to emphasize the differences between the, the uh, young and old among us. By contrast, there's a whole new movement that recognizes the value and importance of bringing generations together through intergenerational programs. How does that work? And how well does it work? Well, here are six of the many benefits of these programs. Listen to how they go. Energize, number one, benefit. They energize older adults and give a sense of purpose, especially when they're sharing and experiencing their skills. So these intergenerational programs really help adults feel like they have a purpose as they move through the stages of their life. Number two, it reduces a sense of isolation for older adults, older adults and potentially relieves depression and anxiety. So, so far, we're just helping the older adults by hanging out with the younger adults. I just want to point this out. It seems to me that older adults are resistant to spending time with younger adults. And there is something, something that God created in you and wove into your DNA that says you need to be investing in people behind you, in younger people. It matters. The third thing they found is that all generation learn new skills. That younger people really helped older people keep up with the times. And older people really helped younger people understand life skills. What it means to be mature. What it means to navigate a lot of hard things in life. What it means to have hope in the midst of difficulty. The programs and the interaction matter. Number four, it helps younger generations understand aging and face their own aging more positively. Well, that would be good. Not all of us have a very good attitude about aging. Number five, it dispels negative stereotypes and it encourages bonding among generations. Who knew? Who knew that hanging out with people different from you helped you understand them better? Isn't that true? Whether it's race or age or gender or whatever it is, if you really want to talk about or be intelligent 
or have some real understanding, hang out with people. Listen. Pay attention. It dispels negative stereotypes and encourages bonding. And finally, number six, for children and youth who don't have grandparents or other seniors in their families, engaging with older adults fills a social gap. Not all of us have the convenience of intergenerational reality. Not all of us have great role models. Not all of us have all of that. Not all of us have our grandchildren near. Not all of us have our children near. Not all of us have our parents or our grandparents. That's okay. That, that somehow, if the nuclear family can't do all of that, there ought to be a place where there's an intergenerational reality. And I think you know where I'm heading, that the kingdom of God ought to be that place. Of all the institutions on earth, we have this opportunity, if only we took advantage of it, if only we believed it, if only we applied ourselves and jumped into that. Paul always had an intergenerational approach. He invested heavily. Whether it was Barnabas or, or John Mark or Silas, he was always mentoring and bringing someone with him. No, more, no one more than Timothy. Timothy, he invests in heavily. We have two epistles, First and Second Timothy, that continue to be a model for how older people really talk to younger people about the things that matter most. And he invested heavily. Let me just read to you Philippians 3, 17, and then skipping ahead to 4, 2, uh, two through nine, and then I'm going to throw it to our student leaders, and they're going to talk to you about the six things upon which intergenerational relationships are built, according to Paul. I'm going to go to the experts. We're going to hear it from their mouths. They're going to talk to you about what it means. So as I read this, see if you can pick out the six things that are happening. Philippians 3:17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Skipping down to 4.2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companions, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And now, as a collaborative intergenerational sermon, here are six things that Paul highlights about intergenerational relationships. Point number one, a relationship of worthy examples. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul says this, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Thanks for kicking it off, Pastor Dave. To be an intergenerational, intergenerational church, we need good examples. You are giving off some kind of example. People are watching you, whether you like it or not. And the question is, are we giving off Christ-like examples? So have you ever been trying to pick up a new skill? Or maybe you've been trying to work on your sports games or fixing something around the house and you're kind of going through it and someone's coaching you through it. They're teaching you, they're speaking to you. 
For me, this has been my golf swing. Former baseball player, my golf swing is terrible. It's awful. And so my brother-in-law has been helping me a lot with my golf swing. And so I'll be, I'll be practicing and he'll be coaching me. He'll be giving me some tips step by step. And finally, I'm just like, dude, I cannot do this. I need you to show me. I need you to give me an example. And so he'll step in and give me an example. And I'm like, oh, that's how you do it. And that happens with all these things is we need physical examples. That's why you can YouTube literally anything and find a video of how to do it. Um, a step-by-step -step process, a physical example of how to do that. And Paul, even in the first century, knew that we needed examples. We need physical examples. And so this is why he says what he says. First, we follow Jesus. And then he encourages the church of Philippi to follow himself and other people who live as we do. And church, let me ask you, are you setting a good example for the younger generations at home? At church, when we get back together, maybe at work you interact with younger people, are you setting a Christ-like example? And younger generations, youth, are you searching for those good examples? Are you looking for those people who have gone before you and has some wisdom to give you. It's important that we find examples and mentors to learn from. So I'm the high school guy, so let me give you a high school statistic. Um, Fuller Youth Institute put this research study out a few years back, and they found out that over 60% of all consistent youth leave the church and will walk away from their faith after high school graduation. Over 60% of consistent youth. We're talking about kids that are consistent in church. Not fringe necessarily, but kids that show up at least three times a month. Those kids, over 60% of them will leave the church after graduation and walk away from their faith. That's heartbreaking. And it fuels my ministry because I think it matters that we follow Jesus into our 20s when we make all these important decisions about our life. And the study continues, and some of those kids will come back, but many will not. And so there's been all kinds of books and studies on how to break that statistic, right? And church, my prayer is that we are a church that breaks down that statistic, that we encourage and give young people good examples to continue following Jesus. And so one of, the, one of the studies that I love that came out of this on how to break down this statistic is from Dr. Chap Clark. He's another Fuller Youth guy. He actually did a lot of work at Crescenta Valley High School, um, did some studies there. And so he came up with what's called the five to one. The five to one. This is five adults per every one youth you have in your church. If you have five adults per one young person in your church that reach out to them, that pray for them, that ask them questions, that maybe show up at a game or a recital, that percentage and that chance of them leaving the church after graduation drops dramatically. Why? Because they've seen a good example. And not only have they seen a Christ-like example, they've seen the older generation looking and saying to them, hey, we care about you. You matter. I know teen life is hard. Let me listen. I care about your future. Let me come alongside you. And so church, point number one, my prayer is that we can be worthy examples, Christ-like examples to younger generations, and also that we would reach out to those youth. 
And John, the question for you, man, is did you have an example like that? Did you have a mentor? I did once I got to high school and I got into church, but when I was growing up, I was kind of a loner. I actually didn't have any real friends until I got into high school. Um, mostly because I would get a friend in um, elementary school and then they would move away at some point in the year and then I just wouldn't have any friends. And um, one of them, I was in second grade and you know, I was a loner and I was just like walking by myself most of the time and there was this one kid, his name was Matthew, I'm not gonna say his last name, and he, uh, he was a bully. And he didn't like me, and I didn't like him. And one day, I was coming out of the Monta Vista bathroom, and, and I was, like, cut in the corner, and there he was. And he was coming in with his, you know, goon friends. And I was like, uh, because I knew, you know, he's going to bully me. And he, sure enough, he, like, shoves me against the tile, the, the wall, and, like, something snapped in me. And I, I attacked him. And I was just like, Gah! and we start, like, it went from the bathroom outside and into the tree well. And we're like rolling around on the ground, like punching and kicking and clawing, probably biting and like, you know, like pulling hair and stuff, obviously. And, and it was like, Argh! and then I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but like the next day, we were best friends. Like for the rest of the year, we were best friends. And then he moved away and I never seen him again. So... <laughs> That's kind of what happens, right? You, you often will have these experiences with people where you, you fight with them and it draws you closer. And all of a sudden, now you have this bond with them that you didn't have before. And, and I think that's so interesting that, um, that Paul talks about that right here. He's, he's telling these two ladies, hey, you guys are having this fight and you need to get it together because, you know, we need to be on the same page in Christ. But he's saying this because they, with him, were fighting through these obstacles. That that's something that we do, and that's how we really get to have these really strong relationships. We fight through obstacles. And, um, and kind of the funny thing, he's calling these two women out in front of the whole church. He writes this letter that gets passed everywhere, and their names are in it. He just calls them out by name. Who does that? Um, I have someone that does that in my life at junior high. Um, we will be hanging out and we'll be, we'll be, you know, doing youth group and I'll be talking. And one of my leaders, my volunteer leaders, Kathy Leon, Gabby's wife, if you know Gabby, um, she'll just call me out in the middle of a sentence. If I'm saying something dumb, if I'm saying something that she doesn't agree with, she'll be like, John, no. And she'll just say the truth right to me in front of everybody. And I'm like, what? And, and at first it bugged me. But then I started to realize that when Kathy's saying things, I should be listening because her and I have gone through years of ministry together. We've been doing this. We've been trying to work in, in the lives of junior high kids for so long. And, and we've fought through things. And it's right there. We've struggled together in ministry. And that's what Paul is saying. We don't just get those relationships. We don't just like have a bunch of meetings with someone and then we have those relationships. We get them because we struggle, right? We get them because we fight through things. And, and I am not saying that um, I'm really good at this. I'm not saying that I'm like the expert on this. I have done this to people that I thought I had that relationship to and I, I did not have that relationship with them and, and it has gone bad. Like I thought, oh, like I've been with this person and we're friends, I can say the thing. And we've all had that conversation, right? We've all been in a conversation where you're like, I have to say this thing. Like this is the one thing and if I say it, the truth will be out. 
and you don't say it because you just, you're not that close. Well, I have said that thing in those conversations. It's gone very badly because I didn't contend with these people to get close to them in that way. And, and it, it, it's not great, right? Um, it doesn't matter how you do it as long as you're struggling through things. And, and like Dave was saying, the church is like a fantastic place to start this. I would recommend actually go to children's ministry and start serving there. Whether you're, you're just lugging furniture and stuff all the time for the, the play or whether you're teaching kids, you will get to know people and you will struggle with them to further kids' lives and you'll get close. And then people start speaking truth in your life, which, you know, maybe you don't want, but that's okay. My kids, my own kids, I can't do this with, right? No matter what, I can't like, just tell them like, hey, this is the truth, you should listen to me. Because when I do, of course, they say, ah, ah, dad, right? Or like, you never listen to me. Like my, my daughter, she loves this. She, you never listen to me. And then she like does this thing. And she like, ah, and she like slams her door. I'm like, ah, back to her, right? It doesn't work. Um, and that's kind of what's, what's interesting is like my dad had like the opposite, right? I, I get there and then I'm like, I go back in the room like, little young lady, you listen to me. And I'm like, it's just like crazy, like escalation. My dad wouldn't do that. He would just stop the conversation and he would be really calm, have a calm voice. And he would just start asking questions. And, and I would be like mad at him because I was like young. And then I was just like, okay, well, okay, yeah, well, there's this. And he just, that's all he would do is ask questions. He was, he was gentle. And that's what Paul says to be. He says, let your gentleness be evident to everyone. And that's, that's not 2020, that, that we live in gentleness, that our gentleness is evident. The things that are evident for us in 2020 are how awesome we are, right? How cool our car is, how big our house is, how great our lawn is manicured. Our stuff, our Instagram feed should be like super cool so that everybody can see how cool we are. That's 2020. That's how we live. We live to win. And that's not what Paul is saying to do. He's saying live in gentleness to everyone. And, and it's, it's, it's like not just like that you're just so nice. It's that you're trustworthy that anyone can come to you and they know that you're not gonna tear their head off if you say something that you need. If you are hurting, you can go to a, someone like this who is gentle and you can say, look, this is what's going on. And they're not gonna condemn you. They're gonna listen to you. That's living in gentleness. I, um, I thought I did really good at this and I thought I was like that kind of person. And then I remembered this thing that happened way back when. I was in this drama class and we had this scenario where like you have a bunch of audience people and then you have people on stage and they're reenacting a scenario. And um, in this particular case, the people on stage who are reenacting would pick someone secretly from the audience and then pretend to be them and like take on their personality. And I'm like watching them do this and I see this guy and he's like, the, the scenario was the van broke down and he's in the back of the van, he's got his headphones on, he's rocking out. And, and he's like totally aloof and he's just like disconnected. And I was watching him and I was like, yeah, he's probably portraying that guy over there because I don't like that guy. And, and then like everybody's panicking and he says, he like puts his headphones in and he's like, I can make a phone call, I can fix it. I can make a phone call. And he puts his headphones on and he goes away. And I was like, yeah, that guy sucks, man. And, um, 
And then he comes up to me afterwards. He's like, John, I'm really sorry. I had to do that to you. And I was like, that was me? And since then, it's, it's like burned in me. Every time I think about that, I'm ashamed. Because there was an ugliness and a terribleness in me that he saw, and he hardly even knew my name, but he saw deep in my heart, and he knew that I just want to win. That I don't care about anybody else. I'm aloof, and I'm disconnected, and people are panicking, and they're do, they're, they need me, and I don't care. I'm doing my thing. And I just, I want to have the trump card. I want to have the ace in my sleeve and just say, well, I can do this, and that would fix it. And if I can't, I don't want to be involved. That's who I am. I don't live a life of gentleness. The evidence of me being a Christian is not that I'm gentle. If I had a Facebook, it would be that I put Christian on my Facebook, right? And, and most of us, that's kind of how we live. We have a bumper sticker on our car. We, you know, put things on Facebook and we say, look, I'm a Christian. I guess the evidence that I'm a Christian is that I work at a church. Paul says the evidence is that you are gentle to all people. John Wesley, theologian, fancy guy, starter of like the whole movement, he says all people, the good people, the bad people, and the difficult people. And it's easy to be gentle to the good people. It's much harder to be, dif- to be gentle to the difficult people. But that's what he says to do. And think about this, like our kids... Teenagers, my junior hires, listen to me, you and you and you. Guys, if you lived a life of gentleness, if it was evident, what would happen? What would change in your schools? What would happen if you went into a classroom and your teacher knew that you were going to be so gentle that you weren't going to attack them, that you weren't going to make fun of them, that you weren't going to sneak in the back and vape in class, which happens, that you weren't going to, you know, just ignore them, that you were going to be so gentle that you're trustworthy, that the things that they were giving you, you would take. What if you guys knew that your teachers were going to be that gentle, that you could mess something up and they would help you? What would change in our schools? My kids have had teachers like that so far, which has been great because they go to church here. What would happen in our social justice system if we knew and we acted gentle? What would change in our church if people were gentle to everyone? Racism would go away. I, I think it's just so interesting that he concludes this thought with this one thing. The Lord is near. And it's like just out of the blue. He says, the Lord is near. But that's the point. There are people that need to know God, that need to know Jesus. And he's right here. And we can't show them Jesus because we're not, our evidence is not gentleness. Our evidence of being a Christian is nothing. And it's, it's, this is me. This is my life. This is how I act. And I work at a church. And it's so convicting to read those words and just go, man, I am not doing it right. And I need to because I have kids that are looking up to me at our youth group that want me to be gentle and I have screwed it up a lot. I have been harsh and I have been aloof and disconnected and the way that I know to get back to it is I got to get in with God and I got to start praying about it. I got to get grounded with prayer. And that's what Sean is going to talk about next, because she's much better at talking about this stuff than me. <laughs> um, 
So in verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Stephen Cole shared this illustration. A family had put their grandma on her first plane flight, but she hadn't been very confident about the experience of leaving the, the ground on this contraption. When they met her at the airport on her return, one of the family members kidded her by asking, well, did the plane hold you up okay? She grudgingly replied, well, yes, and then quickly added, but I never did put my full weight on it. Many Christians are like that grandma. The truth is they're being sustained completely by God, but they're afraid to put their full weight on him. As a result, they're plagued by anxiety and aren't able to enjoy the flight. I am no stranger to anxiety, and it seems almost none of my friends are. It's become a common term in our culture, and I really hate this little gremlin that plagues so many of us. Us young people, I think I'm still in that club, <laughs> I'm not sure, we often live on rocky ground. We're bombarded with more information than our previous generations. Our brains are on a roller coaster of distraction, which makes the act of finding peace a great challenge. And it sometimes feels as though the world intends to keep us in a state of fear. And without much life experience, it's easy to succumb to this fear. For me personally, I find much comfort in the words, relationships, and help of the generation before me. We know that experience leads to wisdom, and wisdom can lead to peace in many cases. The combination of the wisdom of my support group, plus the knowledge that I'm held in prayer by them, helps me in my path to peace. I've been blessed to be encircled in prayer my entire life. I have people in my life who pray for me when they wake up, and others who pray for me before they go to sleep. And I'm sure I have others that are praying for me throughout the, the day. I'm literally covered in prayer every day, and I'm not sure of a greater gift. This verse causes us to confront our motive for wanting peace. Although it seems to be a simple algorithm for peace, anxiety plus prayer equals peace, or vice versa, anxiety minus prayer equals more anxiety. And while there is some truth to the simplicity of this, there is more to the story. It's not a quick fix that Paul is describing but it is a deepening of our relationship with Jesus, our Father, which leads us to peace. Stephen Cole says, We must confront our motives for wanting peace. If our reason for wanting to be free from anxiety is so that we can live a peaceful, pleasant life, our focus is self-centered and therefore wrong. There are many people who come to Christ because they are anxious and they want the peace he offers. But if they do not confront the fact that they are living to please themselves rather than God, they will simply settle into a self-centered life where they use God for their own peace and comfort. Jesus said, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. The peace Christ offers is the byproduct of enthroning Christ as Lord and living for his kingdom. That's a tough word. To me, this verse can feel cumbersome and almost like a setup for failure because we are told to pray about everything. This is difficult. As I mentioned before, we're constantly distracted, the devil's handiwork, and it feels unrealistic to stop every minute to bow our heads in prayer. If anything, that would leave us with a neck ache. Plus, God calls us to look up 
to be engaged in our lives and the people around us. So again, a constant turn to active prayer can make this difficult. But I think how we should view this call in our life for the sake of our peace is that we must examine our focus. What is our practice? When worries knock at our door, are we so far from the foot of the Father that we must run back to him? And on the route, our anxiety builds like a wave that will soon pummel us. Or is the posture of our heart already always aimed towards him? So that when the anxiety knocks at our door, we simply have to tap on the knee of our Father and ask him to answer the door. When Paul says to make our requests known to God, the Greek word means face-to-face with God. So where is our focus? Are we ushering one another, all generations, always to the foot of the Father first? And we can't forget our thanksgiving. Someone once said, thankfulness unlocks peace. When we are worried about something, thankfulness is not natural. We must find our gratitude deliberately. Stephen Cole says we can do this by following these steps. One, remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Two, submitting to God's sovereignty in the present. And three, trusting in God's sufficiency for the future. We must lose our lives to find peace. We must be slaves to the kingdom first to truly enjoy enjoy our life to the fullest. Isn't that contrary to the culture? And as a group, we must usher one another back into the kingdom across all ages, races, and stories. We can lead one another to peace. Thanks, Shauna. Point five is a relationship of redemptive thinking. Paul continues in verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. All right, get the pens ready. I want you to write something down. Of course, the phone works too. You can even tweet it if you want. Here it is. My little message for this point is this. You can't live right if you don't think right. You can't live right if you don't think right. There's a book I I love called I Declare War, and it's by a pastor in Montana named Levi Lusco. And in this book, he quotes a research study, and the research study um, tells us some things about human beings. It says, human beings on average have 500 intrusive thoughts every 16 hours. Each Each one of these intrusive thoughts lasts around 14 seconds. These intrusive thoughts include worrying, or anxious thoughts, also mean and malicious thoughts towards ourselves, others, and the world. And then a smaller percentage of these intrusive thoughts are downright ugly. The total of these thoughts is 116 minutes, so almost two hours of every day we spend fighting intrusive, harmful, and unhelpful thoughts. It's a lot of bad thinking. And the truth about this study is we're going to have intrusive thoughts. We're going to have bad thoughts. And this is why we need to check ourselves with what's going on inside our minds. So often, as Pastor Dave says, we need to think about our thinking. And this is why we need the the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5 so badly right now. He says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And hear this, We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Church, we must take captive every thought. All intrusive, 
harmful thoughts that come to our mind, we have to take them captive under the banner of Jesus. Paul is clear. What we think about matters. You can't live right if you don't think right. And so high school graduates, and all graduates, and really all people, um, but specifically graduates, you're about to step out into the unknown, a new journey, a new season of life. And maybe for, for some of you in the fall, it's college, others the workforce, um, military, a new season, and you're going to have intrusive thoughts. You're going to have doubts, unhelpful things that enter into your mind. Can I do this? Can I really do this? Am I smart enough? Can I get through this program? But we have to take captive those intrusive thoughts, put them under the banner of Jesus, and then throw them out because he is not the author of those thoughts. And my prayer and what Paul is saying is, can we lean into what Jesus tells us we are? And here's what Jesus tells us, is we are valuable. We are worthy. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are known, loved, and chosen. And church, we have things to do. Young people, you have kingdom work to accomplish. You have gifts and passions for a reason. And so can we dwell on things that are noble? and pure, and lovely, and admirable, and if anything is praiseworthy or excellent, Paul says, keep those things in your mind, and my challenge for us is to take captive those intrusive thoughts and throw them out. Go ahead, John. And finally, we're talking about a shared responsibility. So verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So what can we learn from one another? Can we be open to learning from one another? I do believe, although we tend to separate due to our differences, that we each have an innate desire for community despite our age ranges. The church is one of the rare occurrences where we can intermix generationally. Uh, look at my church volunteers, for example. If you come down on a Sunday to the clubhouse, Valley Vista, you'll see a mix of ages serving the kids. We've got our load-in team, which mainly consists of strong men and Jordy Schultz, who help us load in all our supplies and transform the space. Then we have moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas checking in the kids throughout the morning and monitoring security. We have young adults, parents, and grandparents volunteering with their kids in their small groups. Then we're often blessed with young people like junior hires or high schoolers who pop in from time to time to play with the kids or help us load out at the end of the day. It's, in my mind, a little picture of what the kingdom of God is and can be here on earth. And why do we do it? It's for the kids. People will bend over backwards for an adorable six-year-old and also because of their conviction to serve. My challenge to you today is this. Those adorable six-year-olds, they grow up. They grow up to be sometimes awkward, challenging middle schoolers, and then onto, on occasion, stubborn, self-absorbed high schoolers, and then eventually, every so often, arrogant young adults, and then onto occasionally grouchy old people, and so on. But our call is still the same, to care for one another and take on the shared responsibility of the community in every phase of life. 
One of my favorite, cro- favorite quotes that I try to keep in the back of my mind when interacting with all people is this. You will never look into the eyes of someone God does not love. So this includes that adorable six-year-old, but it also includes that nasty individual who yelled at you at Walmart. So what is our responsibility? To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are called to care for the widow and for the poor. To be together. Community is God's desire for us. He saw almost immediately that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So he created a companion. We were not designed to be lone survivors. Our responsibility is to try, whenever it is up to us, to cultivate peace amongst one another. What does this require? I think it simply comes down to knowing one another. It's amazing the level of grace I have for those I know on an intimate level. For example, don't, crit- don't critique my siblings un- unless you want to be challenged by me. I know those kids to their very core, and yes, they make mistakes, but I will defend their hearts to the ends of the earth because of how well I know them. You give people grace and work so hard for peace when you know their struggles and their strengths. We have to work hard to get to know one another on that level and be vulnerable with one another so that we can. And we shouldn't even begin to step into that zone of criticism until we know each other in that way. Could that be possible for us? We have a responsibility to live in truth. In Psalms 15, David asks, Who will dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord? Who may live on his holy hill? It says, he says, It is those who are righteous, who speak the truth from their heart and have no slander on their tongue. Can we find a way to live in truth with one another, but be as gentle as doves in our truth? Keeping love at the forefront. What would that look like? And finally, to usher each other back to the Father and to the truth of what he feels about us. That's our number one responsibility that we all take on as the body of Christ. That when our shame and anger and confusion drag us away from God, our brothers and sisters usher us back to his feet to remind each other of how his unending and renewing mercy is the only solution to make us whole. So how do we do this? by being his ambassadors, by loving our neighbor, one neighbor at a time, allowing God's love to lead our steps each day. We stay close to him, and he'll lead us to our responsibility. Amen. That's a lot of wisdom. I, uh, I'm going to go back and uh, check out and see uh, how many people faded after, uh, you know, because we went 10 minutes over. <laughs> that, that won't bode well for our intergenerational commitment. <laughs> and I'm just thinking as we invite the band, you guys can start heading up here. We're going to close and worship with our team. I, I just want to remind you, because this isn't theoretical stuff. So, so if you're struggling in your home, generationally, parents and kids and siblings with one another and, 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 and you know, whatever all that looks like, Listen, our culture is looking for some sort of immediate cure for the ills of our society. Some, we're going we're gonna to do something, and we ought to reform things. But listen, a death to racism comes because we raise up a generation, because we commit as adults to be the people that set the example. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time, like every other value. And I want to remind you of Isaiah 43. I want you to forget the former things. 
I don't want you to dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. See how it springs up? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the wasteland. And maybe in your home, in your family, in some relationship, there's this contentious thing going on. Listen, let's forget the past. Let's stop dwelling on the former things. Paul says, listen, there is a way to build this intergenerational relationship. We've celebrated that today. And now as we sing, as we celebrate, as I pray over you and we dismiss, I'm asking you to not let this remain in your head, but you start today with your kids, with your grandkids, with your parents, with your grandparents, with the people around you. And I'm asking you that as we move forward and we move out of this pandemic and and, and sheltered at home and we come back as a body of Christ over these next few weeks and months, that we come back different, changed, with a new normal. And that new normal is intergenerational to its very core. God, help us. Help us be the church you envision, inclusive of race and gender and generation. And make us the place that represents the kingdom of God. Lead us, bless homes and families, I pray, as we move out into this week. I pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the whole church said, Amen. Let's respond and worship together. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.